You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting remotely for WFHB, this is Benedict Jones. And I'm Lucinda Larnick. This is the WFHB Local News 4, Thursday, January 20th, 2022. Later in the program, WFHB correspondent Shade Ajishigiri reports on an MLK Day event hosted by the Monroe County Library earlier this week. More in today's feature report. Also coming up in the next half hour, WFHB correspondent Nathaniel Weinzerfell reports on a bill in the State House that deals with fireworks regulation. That's coming up next in your local headlines. of legislation in the Indiana State House would allow local governments to restrict the days when Hoosiers can light fireworks. WFHB environmental news correspondent Nathaniel Weinzapple has the story. While many Hoosiers may have rained in the new year with the sounds and sights of fireworks in the night sky, Many Hoosier veterans with post-traumatic stress disorder suffered through the holiday. A new bill in the Indiana State House is seeking to address the concerns of veteran groups by shrinking the time that fireworks are legally permitted during the year, from 12 days down to 4 days. House Bill 1053 was introduced by Republican Representative Donna Schleiby of Carmel, Indiana, and she has indicated that the bill is in response to her constituents who complain about the negative effects the fireworks have on them and their pets. Shibley stated in an article for the Times of Northwest Indiana that, quote, I like fireworks. I appreciate the beauty and tradition, but these are not small pyrotechnics. They are large and loud, unquote. This is likely in response to the uptick in firework purchases and the new types of fireworks that have been developed in recent years. NPR reported during the 4th of July of 2020 that firework purchases increased by 300%, with many people opting to create their own firework displays instead of attending massive public firework shows. Cities around the country have also reported an uptick in police reports concerning the illegal usage of fireworks. For example, the city of Boston, Massachusetts saw calls about fireworks complaints up 2,300% in 2020. Similarly, fireworks have become more deadly over time. In 2020, fireworks caused the deaths of 18 people in the United States, a jump from 12 people the year prior. According to the New York Times, the amount of people admitted to hospitals around the country due to fireworks has also increased by 56%, jumping from 10,000 injured in 2019 to 15,000 injured in 2020. Representative Shibley is also concerned for Hoosier veterans and pets who suffer through the holidays of the 4th of July and New Year's Eve. Many veterans suffering from PTSD can be triggered by the fireworks, which have the potential to bring them back to the battlefield due to the exploding sounds. This is especially frequent when fireworks are lit at unusual hours of the morning, specifically during the times when people would normally be sleeping. Veterans are particularly susceptible to the trauma-inducing noises, 
when they are startled out of slumber. Pets also suffer through fireworks. The booming noises and lights in the sky can cause pets to become frightened of the environment around them and even become wary of their owners. This has led to many pets fleeing their homes during the firework holidays and ending up lost on the street. Owners often spend their holidays worried for their pets. It is likely for these reasons that Representative Shibley wants to limit the legally state-permitted days that fireworks can be set off. At the current moment, localities around the state are allowed to set their own laws for fireworks except on the days legally allowed by the state, which are five days before and after the 4th of July and the night and morning of New Year's. The bill would limit statewide permitted firework times to between certain times on July 3rd to 5th and between 10 a.m. on New Year's Eve and 1 a.m. January 1st. This will limit the legal time to set off fireworks to only a total of 27 hours a year. Supporters of the bill believe that this gives power back to local communities to set their own time frame for fireworks, depending on the needs of the community. They also believe that 12 days is too much. Opponents, including workers in the firework industry, have predicted that they will suffer heavy economic losses due to the bill and that it is unheard of for the government to limit the usage of a legal consumer product to only 27 hours. There are also many people, including some members of the Indiana Fireworks Association, who are indifferent to the bill, as they believe that some Indiana residents would still choose to light off fireworks whenever they please. At the current moment, the bill is making its way to the State House. For WFHB, I'm Nathaniel Winesapple. Next, WFHB correspondent Shade Ajashigiri reports on MLK Day event hosted by Monroe County Library earlier this week. Dozens of Bloomington residents attended Martin Luther King Jr. Day events at the Monroe County Public Library throughout the day. The library hosted a variety of activities for all ages, including story times, a performance from the Bloomington Peace Choir, and various arts and crafts. Jenny Hostler, a children's librarian who led the reading and singing session, described what MLK Day means to her. To me, it's just a point in time that we can kind of revitalize our commitment mm -hmm. to talking about race. Mm -hmm. I mean, of course, there's lots of other things to talk about, you know, peace, action, all of that. But really, for me, with what I do with the kids is I try to get the parents and the caregivers comfortable talking about something like this, especially white parents, I think. They sometimes think that it's taboo to talk mm -hmm. about race, mm -hmm. and I don't want that to happen. I don't yeah. want it to get into a point where they won't talk about it because that teaches the child. That it's like not okay to talk about exactly. it. Yes, exactly, yeah. yeah. And so we try to bring that out, especially on MLK Day, yeah. but really in all of our story times. She said this awareness really started to hit her in high school. 
I think as a teenager, I started being more aware of political atmosphere and everything like that. And then, of course, you know, in the past few years with a lot of the things happening with George Floyd, with other black members of the community, it just kind of created an urgency for me. And I think that's when I really started paying attention and wanting to do something about it at a local level. And I'm lucky enough that I can do that. Tawana Smith, a local resident who served on the MLK committee at Second Baptist Church, brought her son to the library to make learning about civil rights more fun. So the Martin Luther King Day event Mm -hmm. with my seven-year-old son, Mm -hmm. we just really wanted to be involved. I was on the MLK committee at Second Baptist Church, so I just like really wanted to get the education and information over to my seven-year-old son in Mm -hmm. a different, fun way. She was pleasantly surprised by the amount of activities the library had to offer in honor of Dr. King. I was kind of shocked and even just seeing the brochure for next month because they didn't do that a lot here. So this is like, to me, for the last seven years at least, I've been intact with, you know, the library and their events. So just seeing that they're trying to put more Black information out Mm -hmm. in positive ways, uh, you know, they can only do so much and then the community have to do their part. But to see that they're, you know, up in it a little bit, mm-hmm. that, that makes me happy. She wants her son to know that people who look like him have the power to change the world. So we got together and they usually like do kind of like the same thing. And we did something fun where we put like 100 Ziploc baggies together and rolled up quotes from MLK. Awesome. And we added a Hershey kiss mm-hmm. and a peppermint to signify um, the unity of like black and white. Even while we had worked together preparing what we was going to do, we was like, we're living out his dream right now. Working together, us going up up in front of the church that was live streamed and hugging each other and holding hands and showing that it's okay to do. She thinks that Dr. King would be proud to see the way the community came together to celebrate positive social change. Black and white being able to work together in a public setting, like black people being able to walk into a library and not be harassed. Mm-hmm. The several places that we've went already this morning, not being harassed. The fact that my son could every day go to school mm-hmm. and not be harassed and he doesn't have to be like the first black minority kid Mm -hmm. in his school. He is multiracial, so Mm -hmm. he definitely like see pros and cons on both sides and kind of was confused until you gotta kind of talk to him really young and Mm -hmm. let them know like, you know, like he's rocking his curly afro today and he's just (laughs) proud about it. Uh, He's multiracial, he's black, Mexican and Puerto Rican. Mm -hmm. So like, I just want to put all cultures and all heritage and let him know like, No, you don't have to cut your hair to look like that Mm -hmm. or to be accepted. Susie Sullivan, a member of the Bloomington Peace Choir, said that MLK Day is a holiday that encourages the humanitarian spirit. I think it definitely has much more of a a service component that you don't get with other holidays particularly. Try to reach out and do something for your community. In pre-COVID days, that meant things like getting together with the Girl Scouts and making, I don't know, pet toys and blankets and whatever. That's what I personally have done. Volunteering at the community kitchen, their helps are a lot of places around town, different volunteer opportunities on MLK Day. She said that performing with the choir has brought the significance of MLK Day closer to home for her. The beanie hit me more with, with Peace Choir. We've been here at the library several years in a row, and I think that really has kind of helped bring the, the message to me. The 
the library will continue to be a central resource for the community in civil rights education and events, especially as we move into February and Black History Month. For WFHB News, I'm Shade Ajishigiri. On Monday, the city of Bloomington hosted the annual Martin Luther King Jr. Day celebration at the Buzzkirk Chumley Theater. Before the event, Bring It On hosts Clarence Boone and William Hosea interviewed keynote speaker Dr. Eddie Cole, an associate professor of higher education and organizational change at UCLA. He has published and presented on a variety of topics, primarily college presidents during the Black Freedom Movement and their responses to racial incidents. Joining the conversation is Dr. Charlie Nelms, a native of Arkansas's Delta, who has devoted his life to equalizing opportunities for disenfranchised peoples. Dr. Nelms is currently a senior scholar at the American Association of State Colleges and Universities and a senior consultant for the Association of Governing Boards. Bring It On airs each Monday at 6 p.m. on WFHB. The program is available online at wfhb.org or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Uh, Gentlemen, I I want to read a statement, and I want to get your observations, and in particular, if you can expound on what you're feeling, the challenging issues that are plaguing higher education are. Uh, Here's here's the uh, statement. There is a tremendous opportunity to bridge higher education history with the issues that we are grappling with today. Everything I see unfolding right now, there is a history behind it. The more we understand the full history of race and racism on college campuses, the better equipped we will be to deal with it. What are these observable challenges? And Dr. Cole, I'll, or Eddie, I'll, I'll turn to you first. Yeah, I, the, I, you know, I don't, I'm not sure we got enough time um, to really get back <laughs> of the challenges uh, facing and plaguing higher education today. But you know, one thing that stands out that's very clear, and we see it unfolding in the national news right now, is the cost of higher education, and and that starts with tuition and the uh, wealth disparities along racial groups. And if you look at the uh, recent reports around student debt, uh, they're disproportionately skewed toward black students and black graduates, trying to make sense of how to even pay for higher education. And if they do uh, take out loans, how do they repay said loans? So that's one particular issue that's plaguing higher education and it's a racialized issue. Another issue um, that comes to mind immediately is the issue around free speech. Uh, We oftentimes think of free speech in the very matter of fact way as a constitutional right, but we don't think about it, what it means when an institution actively looks to recruit um, and, and, uh, you know, students from various backgrounds and promote diversity, equity, and inclusion. Yet at the same time, there's the uh, controversial speakers and conservative speakers that oftentimes promote hate speech on campus. And that's a, that's a very real challenge. That's also racialized as well. Uh, we can also talk about affirmative action, the very, very narrow um, view of affirmative action that we have today that tends to skew toward very selective colleges and universities and whether those highly selective colleges 
can consider race in their admissions, but history tells us that actually affirmative action was so much more. I'll talk about that later tonight, but uh, it was so much more, including a lot of historically black colleges and universities. That was the original plans around affirmative action in higher education. And so the list goes on and on and on from how we engage student activists on campus, knowing that Martin Luther King himself was arrested in Georgia for, for joining alongside student activists who were challenging whites only lunch counters. Yet at the same time, when we think about student activists today, they're not always as warmly received when they're pushing for change on college campuses and beyond. And so those are just some of the issues. Uh, I mean, we can go on and on. I don't want to, I don't, I don't even know where to stop because we can get into, uh, you know, college athletics um, and what that means from a variety of points, um, especially when we think about the disproportionate number of black students who make up well, revenue generating sports. But that's that's just some of the things that come to mind immediately. We'll yield uh, two more minutes for, for athletics. I'm really curious to hear what you have to say about that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, one thing, um, I had an op-ed in the Washington Post come out in the summer of 2020, so in the first few months um, after COVID came upon us, and there was a big debate among colleges, universities, large or small, private or public, over whether to move forward with uh, college athletics when there was so much unknown with regard to COVID-19 and what its impact would do as far as travel and teams you know, competing against each other. And uh, that's just one example that we saw so many student athletes across the country uh, say that they wanted to play, but they wanted safety precautions put in place. And understanding how the disproportionate number of student athletes, once again, tend to be black students, especially revenue generating sports, men's basketball, women's basketball, college football, really on all levels, uh, but especially division one, uh, both football, both subdivision and football championship subdivision. And what does it mean when you think about these student athletes and something as simple as them going home on a weekend? Um, and what in the, the so little that we knew about the virus, there was no vaccine in sight, but there's also the revenue aspect for the university, right? Uh, being able to compete the television contracts, the multi-million dollar contracts in conferences, that gross over a billion dollars um, in total at the end of uh, athletic seasons. And so again, that becomes a very racialized issue. I mean, in so many ways you think about who fan bases are and who big donors are, especially large athletics that tend to be white people who are these big donors who sit in the suites and travel with the team. Yet the talent on the field tends to be black students, right? And so when you talk about putting student athletes out on the the field to play and at the very beginning of a pandemic, again, when we knew so little about it and these being black students, yet those people most being entertained by their performance in the middle of a pandemic, being white, white, you know, game attendees, donors and so forth, that once again becomes just another racialized issue. And uh, just over the last year, you see uh, movement, name, image and likeness um, happening for student athletes, happening in a way that arguably we might not have seen it happen if not for COVID-19, because all of a sudden it became a very blatant contradiction between what universities had often said they wanted, amateur sports, yet it became very, very much professionalized when it came to the question of whether you put these amateur athletes on the field during a global pandemic. And so again, I can elaborate on so many different aspects of this, but that just gives a little snapshot of some of the questions that hover in my mind when it comes to athletics. Yeah. Dr. Downs? Well, you know, Clarence, I would agree with everything uh, uh, Eddie said. Um, and I wanna lift up three additional ones. 
The first is what I call the facade of diversity, equity, and inclusion. The facade of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And there is more rhetoric around this notion of DEI than there really is action. And one of the pieces that I would, I would refer you to is a piece that I did in the uh, diverse issues in one of my columns uh, several months ago. And I said, DEI is more than an acronym, okay? And so many people have become fixated on the acronym and we focus on access for students, which we should focus on, but we don't focus as much as we should on student success and we don't focus as much about people who are leading institutions, whether it be as deans, vice presidents, vice chancellors, presidents, or chancellors. So all of that I call the facade of DEI. The second one that I would raise is a lack of philanthropic support, philanthropic support for low wealth institutions in general, but HBCUs in particular. And so when uh, uh, McKinsey Scott gave the money to a select group of HBCUs, people celebrated. You know, I'm, I'm pleased that they got the money too, but people, I mean, people just got so excited about it, right? And $50 million is a lot of money, so I don't want to play that down, okay? But at the Michigans and the, uh, um, the California, University of California schools, uh, Harvard, Yale, et cetera, et cetera, I mean, a $50 million gift, okay, is pretty average for those places, okay? So we have this disproportionate kind of investment and in getting a tax write-off of that philanthropists make to high wealth institutions. And we get this decline at a time happening with HBCUs, some little bit of an increase at a time when the increase in, in, in philanthropic support at a time when there's a decline disproportionately from state resources going into public institutions, especially, okay? Mm -hmm. And then the final one that I wanted to sort of raise, lift up, uh, uh, and that is the cumulative effects of historic underfunding for historically black colleges and universities. A lot of people want to start with what happened last year, year before. But if you go out there and look at the 1890 Land Grant Act or the 1860, uh, uh, the first uh, Land Grant Act, where the state gave all of these dollars and it was not until 1890 that HBCUs got those dollars. Well, just think about the kind of growth that occurred in the kind of investment that those institutions were able to make during the first Morale Act, okay? And the kind of land transfer that occurred. And so those are all issues that really crowd for a greater understanding such that you can make the case as it did recently in the state of Maryland, okay, with the need to address a kind of reparations, if you will, without ever calling it that. Up next, WFHB's Youth Radio took the streets of Bloomington to ask residents how all the rain last December affected them, affected the climate, and what can be done to help. We turn to producer Wilder Mouton for more. This is Voices in the Street, 
WFHB's monthly public opinion feature, providing the members of our community the opportunity to have their voices heard. Last month, our correspondents braved the torrential showers to ask Bloomington residents how the radical weather shifts last December have affected them. Asking, how do you feel about all this rain in December? I'm tired of it, and I want it to stop. Rain's okay, I wish it were snow. I mean, it sucks, but weather in Bloomington always sucks. I think there's maybe like one good day out of the year in Bloomington where the weather's nice. Being from Wisconsin originally, I would rather this be snow. I second that statement. It doesn't feel like December when it's raining. Do you feel like the strange weather is making you feel off? It is off. It's not correct. The world is out of balance. It, you know, when it's raining so much, I think it affects people's state of mind a little bit too. At least I know it does mine, you know. When the sun's shining, it doesn't really matter the temperature. It makes you feel better. Would you agree? I agree. I think that's definitely worrying, climate change and all that, but like, not too much I can do about it. There was like a couple winters ago where I remember snow, but like ever since then, for like the last few years, there hasn't been snow, so I've gotten used to it, but yeah, it does feel strange. Like, I guess I haven't really thought about it, that there's no snow, so. Are you concerned about extreme weather events worsening due to climate change? It's like such an abstract issue that like in your daily life, you don't really feel it. I mean, I'm sure like in some parts of the country you do, but like, you know, I'm worried about like exams and stuff. So thinking about like global emissions or something is not on the top of my list. I mean, sure, it's a concern, but like, I hope other people are dealing with that. You know, I'm not the guy to address the issue. You can call it what you want, global warming, climate change, Whatever you want to call it, it's happening. It's here. You just have to ask the people on the street that have been affected by it or impacted that no longer have a home or their goods or belongings, right? What do you think policymakers or individuals should be doing about this? Do you feel hope for the future? Making sure that more heat actually lands on the surface of the Earth rather than getting absorbed by the atmosphere so that more of the radiation from solar rays actually comes here and increases uh, production by solar panels. But I would say carbon taxes, things along those lines, would probably be helpful. So I think the best solution would probably be some trade agreement where we set some regulations, we enforce them on other countries, but we also make sure that's not going to reduce their growth. So we would have to provide some money because obviously we can afford to be green and neutral. Other countries can't really. There's so much to control. I don't know that the policy is going to do it. I think more of like a... Yes. Yeah, I think people need to be motivated to change. Probably just meat consumption. Meat consumption yeah. is really bad for the environment. Well, I guess that all depends on us and the future generations to come and how we decide to deal with it. Uh, I mean, everything around us is kind of dependent upon having your own personal car. It, it goes to even the way cities are enshrined in the law and have to be built like the roads and stuff so if we were able to walk more places and things along those lines it'd be great but we don't have a lot of control over that only policymakers do i feel optimistic because i believe um, your generation is is going to be the change agents and future generations we have to change we got to strive to change and be better and i think we have that opportunity it's i think a bit harder to tell people as you know a 20-something college student like hey this is how you should change your life to better suit the environment because 
I kind of do it too. I have a car. I'm not a vegetarian. It is what it is. All interviews were conducted by Marty Abadi and Noel Herhusky Schneider. Edited and produced by Wilder Mouton. This has been Voices in the Street, WFHB's monthly public opinion feature of candid, local commentary about our world today. Voices in the Street is a volunteer-powered joint production of our news department and youth radio program here on WFHB, 91.3 and 98.1 FM, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Support for WFHB Local News is brought to you by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. More information online at mpisolarenergy.com. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Nathaniel Weinzappel in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Our feature was produced by Shade Aji Shigiri. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. Engineer and executive producer is Kate Young. For WFHB, I'm Lisa Larnock. And I'm Benedict Jones. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent daily news program. The WFHB Local News Program is also available as a podcast. Just search our call letters, WFHB, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Subscribe to never miss another local news program. Stay tuned for Big Talk, a one-on-one conversation with some of Bloomington's most fascinating people. Coming up next on WFHB. WFHB.